When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Donnie Walton is the author of the novel The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, which was named one of 2021's most anticipated books by Essence, Vogue, The Oprah Magazine, Ellie the Independent, Lit Hub, Pop Sugar, The Millions, and Hype Bay. A native of Jacksonville, Florida, now living in Brooklyn, Donnie Walton's work as a fiction writer and journalist explores identity, place, and the influence of pop culture. She will be accompanied by an original Storybound remix. Hi, this is Donnie Walton, and you're listening to Storybound. I'm reading an excerpt from my debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. It's a fictional oral history about an interracial rock and roll duo in early 1970s New York. It's about their rise, their fall, and a dark secret that comes to light as they consider reuniting in 2016. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. You are about to hear a poignant fictional oral history of the beloved rock and roll duo who shot to fame in 1970s New York and the dark fraught secret that lies at the peak of their stardom. Editor's note. Disclosure. My father, a drummer named Jimmy Curtis, fell in love with Opal Jewel in the summer of 1970. For the duration of their affair, he was married to my mother, who, in 71, got pregnant with me. Before my birth, before the world had a chance to know much about my father beyond these facts, he was beaten to death by a racist gang during the riot at Rivington Showcase. And before my mother could bury his broken body, his mistress blazed to stardom. And this is a personal history that, throughout my life, I have taken significant pains to conceal. In my 25 years as a journalist, I've never needed to lean on it. I got here under my own steam, toured the world's most dazzling arenas with U2, won awards for following funny money raised by benefit concerts. 
even interviewed artists who, oblivious of my connections, cited Opal Jewel and Neb Charles, together and solo, as their heroes. Santa Gold, The White Stripes, and The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, to name just a few. All this work I've compiled as S. Sonny Shelton, the name I put to legal papers on my 18th birthday. My chosen name, this hard-earned byline, cobbles together the first initial of my birth name, my favorite word as a child, and the Philadelphia street where the umber facade of my maternal grandmother's row house decays, flake by flake. You could say that every decision I've made to divorce myself from the violent birth of Opal and Nev has been like this. Intentional and a touch paranoid. So, you ask, what the hell am I doing now? Writing the foreword for a story I swore I'd never tell. I could justify my involvement in this project by explaining that the internet and cable news have changed the game for journalists, stretching the boundaries of what's possible and upending all the rules we thought we knew. I could tell you that in this new era, readers and television audiences now accept, even expect, a flavoring of bias. But I wouldn't want to bullshit you. March 20th, when I was first This book exists because in March 2015, when I was named Oral's Editor-in-Chief, the first African-American and first woman to win the gig since the magazine launched in 1965, I gave myself permission to write it. Understand that before my big come up, I had been playing a game familiar to many women of color outnumbered in our industries. I worked hard, kept my head down, and made a meticulous, watertight case supported by data-stuffed PowerPoints from every idea I ever pitched. And still, I worried that the reasons for my success would be questioned by even my most progressive white colleagues. I imagined that at cocktail parties, the bane of my socially anxious existence, they would gossip about me after I left their huddles, roll their eyes and snark to each other between bites of crab cake. Isn't diversity wonderful? After our young new publisher offered me the promotion, I nonetheless closed the door of my office on the 14th floor, opened the window that looked down onto Liberty Street, and screamed victory to the poor tourists below. I felt pride, of course, but something more, something better. Freedom. Freedom to trust my tastes, take my own counsel, make bold moves. Here was a chance, or so I'd assumed, to pursue every fascination I had ever wanted to follow, but didn't feel that I could. I looked up at the 1972 Vogue photo of Opal Jewel that I'd pinned to a corkboard. Its significance to me carefully shrouded among all the other rock memorabilia I kept there. And I thought, maybe it's finally time. As if on cue, like the supernatural force I'd always imagined her to be, Opal Jewel appeared in my life not long after that reverie. At the April 2015 taping of a Netflix music special honoring Studio Wizards, the first high-profile event I'd attended since taking Aurel's reins, I ran into her. Literally ran into her, as in both of our clutches fell to the floor, 
her bullet of lipstick and my cell phone clattering across the marble. This happened inside the ladies' lounge at New York's Gotham Hall, minutes before the event was scheduled to start. Nev was on the bill, set to play a couple of his old solo hits in tribute to Rivington Records super producer, Bob Heise, and Nev's presence had made me skittish enough. But even considering the honoree, no one had expected Opal would show up. Ironic, considering shock was once her forte. She hadn't made the scene in decades, and that night her attire was subdued. She wore a simple black shirt dress with a yellow paisley turban hugging her scalp instead of one of the old, wild wigs. Still, I knew instantly who she was. I know her the same ways that you do, as Nev Charles's one-time partner in Strange. The ebony skin provocateur, the fashion rebel, the singer, screecher, Afropunk ancestor, the unapologetically black feminist resurrected via gifts and Instagram quotes for these intense political times. Of course, through my lens, so many other identities were superimposed. Here was my father's crazy girlfriend, the one he got himself killed for, the source of my mother's pain and, by extension, her frustrations with me, my most complicated idol. At first, when we collided, her gliding in through the door, me stalking out in the treacherous high heels I'd worn to walk the red carpet, Opal Jewel shot me the side eye of life, the honey please expression to launch a million new memes. And then she squinted as I scrambled to pick up her handbag. She raised my lowered hand with a finger under my chin and she called me by the first name I ever had. Sarah Lena. The name that my father, I would later learn, had intended for me, improvised from a dream. Saralina, she said, and it wasn't even a question. Jimmy's girl. Jimmy's girl. Jimmy's girl. Jimmy's girl. It was a moment I had dreaded and fantasized about since I was nine. That was the year an older cousin, angry that I had beaten him in a tight game of Chinese checkers on our grandmother's front porch, said that my daddy had got his head kicked in over some ugly bald-headed bitch. After I called him a liar... He snuck into Grand D's bedroom and pulled the old New York Times clipping from her cedar chest. Before I read the story on the melee at Rivington Showcase, featuring Marion Jacoby's iconic photograph of Opal and Nev and reporting my father as the one dead, I hadn't known any of it. All this seemed too much to blurt, standing face to face with Opal in the ladies' lounge. I wasn't a child. I was 43 years old, a top professional at one of my industry's starriest events. The lights in the lounge flickered to signal the start of the program, so I excused myself and hustled out. Thanks to my new gig, I had the privilege of being seated at one of the best tables in the house, right in front of the stage with the Times critics and the Netflix executives, but I could barely pay attention to the show. If you ever happen to stream it, there's a moment when the camera pans over the audience. And that's when you'll see me, a grave-faced black woman wearing a choker necklace and a pile of locks atop her head. Everyone around me is smiling and singing along with Bruce Springsteen and Chrissy Hind, but I'm staring off somewhere, studying the monitors, 
on guard for the past. That night, I didn't see Opal buddying up with Nev and his team, and she wasn't seated anywhere near Heise's table either. From what I could tell, she wasn't even in the front half of the room that the cameras could catch. I was gulping water by that point, thinking that maybe the stress of the day and three glasses of champagne had made me dream the whole encounter. When the waiter came around again, in front of me he dropped a puck of cheesecake drizzled over with chocolate ganache and a note on yellow paper. I unfolded it. In red Sharpie was a phone number, followed by that famous autograph, the opal in wide stance all caps, followed by the cut diamond shape. The story's not over yet. You'll hear more of Donnie Walton after the break. You are listening to Storybound with author Donnie Walton reading as S. Sonny Curtis. And now we return from our break, continuing the editor's note. We met where Opal was staying in Harlem, in the same brownstone where she had lived with Virgil Lafleur when she first arrived in New York in 1970. Lafleur, her best friend and principal stylist, hovered around us on the parlor level, protective of Opal and skeptical of me. Off the record, Cher, he chimed every two minutes. Eventually, she sent him out on a hunt for an elusive flavor of gelato conveniently found somewhere downtown. For more than an hour then, Opal Jewel and I were alone. And during that time, she confirmed something I think I had known deep down since I was a teenager growing up in a single income apartment and yet shuttling off every morning to the toniest private school in greater Philadelphia. Opal was the one who gave my mother the money for my education straight through to my master's in journalism from Medill. During my visit, she was blunt and funny, edge-snatching as always. And when Virgil returned, she sent me away, but told me I could see her in Los Angeles if I were so inclined. On my next trip west, with my first cover as editor of Oral off to the printers, I pulled up to the Baldwin Hills address she'd given me. A note on the door pointed me to the back of the house, where Opal, bald as you please, was smoking a joint in a rocking chair and directing an assistant gardener in the care of her tomato, okra, and basil plants. In the daylight, her dark skin glowed, still unlined despite her 66 years, and the high angle of her cheekbones sitting above the deep V chin, gave her an ethereal, almost alien aspect. We talked for another two hours as the dust came down and the air grew thick with gnats. The dust came down. Although our chats would eventually turn more fraught as we circled the details of her fateful dalliance with my father, these early off the record moments were a dream. We touched on her childhood years, 
the development of her brash political philosophies and style, and how, 45 years ago now, she, an outcast black girl from Detroit, and Nev, a goofy white English boy, had decided to take a chance on each other. No, these stories weren't totally new, but even skimming them at surface level, I could see a potential for something deeper, an opportunity to hear anecdotes and revelations I had never read in any of the old interviews with Opal, or even in the relative mountain of press and biography that exists today on Nev. At some point, the conversation turned toward me. Under the glow of tall citronella torches, Opal showed me an astonishing scrapbook she'd kept featuring my clips and columns, even tiny, terrible concert reviews of forgotten early 90s acts that had run in the daily Northwestern. As we flipped toward the back of the scrapbook, we lingered on a tribute to the Ramones I'd written, following the death of the last surviving original member, Tommy Ramone, and the exclusive excerpt I'd landed from a new book of Joni Mitchell interviews. Then finally, the news, announced in Billboard complete with my headshot, of my promotion. It dawned on me she was leading me somewhere. So you know I'm a professional busybody, I said. Is there a reason you wanted to meet with me? That's when she dropped an incredible scoop. Nev had broached the idea of a North American reunion tour, starting with a headlining show at summer 2016's Daring Do Festival. And though she had not performed live in more than 25 years, Opal was giving it serious thought. I struggled to keep my head from popping clean off. You want me to break this news? There's nothing to break yet, she said, still looking down at my picture instead of at me. I haven't decided to do a damn thing. Him and me, we just talking so far. But I wanted to know what you might think about that. What do you mean, talking? Already I was seeing this tour in my mind. Live, wild bits of what I'd only witnessed in fuzzy YouTube clips. A rock and roll fantasy I'd assumed it impossible to fulfill. A flash of my mother's face, pained in the glow of televised highlights. Opal Jewel looked up at me finally, the scrapbook still open on the table in front of us. I'm trying to figure out if I'm up to it. I'm getting old. She swatted a hand in the air, as if the idea were another gnat. Yet instantly, I knew that this timing was smart. The tour had the potential to excite not only the Mercurials, as Opal and Nev's old cult of fans call themselves, but a new generation. Crowds ready to scream along with these crazy progenitors of dissidence and dissonance that Black Lives Matter, that love is love, that the future is female. Ready to embrace Opal Jewel not as ahead of her time, but as now, now, now. I was thinking, she said, that you might get something out of this too. You know how these business types do. They got my head spinning crazy talking about promotions, I said, my heart pounding. They want a book? She nodded, squinting. She seemed to be searching my face for something. If I'm gonna go back to that music, to me and to Nev and your daddy, to doing interviews again and whatnot, 
it seems like a decent place to start. We still have a whole lot of story left. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Donnie Walton reading as S. Sonny Curtis. And now we return from our break where we're about to hear from Opal and Pearl themselves. And so on that pleasant night in Opal Jewel's garden, I charted in my head the book I would write, the definitive unpacking of the who's, how's, and why's surrounding the riot that killed my father and shot his weird friends and bandmates into our consciousness. I would report it as the latest volume in our oral history series, chronicling the origins of rock stars, and I'd dispense just enough controlled emotion to make it more saleable more morning show ready. Little did I know that these plans would get waylaid. This end product, with its painful revisions of history, both my subjects and my own, is what follows. You might find it at times untamed and unwieldy and find that it contains no easy answers. But as I write these words now, embracing the funny, humbling way hindsight works, I promise my fellow Mercurials this, Though in moments it might break your heart, as it surely did mine, this story is the closest I could get to true. To true. As Sunny Curtis, February 20th, 2017. Opal Jewel. Opal, 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 Our mother was Ruby Robinson. That's right. She was Ruby, and she named her daughters Pearl and Opal. Since I was old enough to remember, Mama worked at the GM plant on Clark Street, but not on the assembly line. She was in the cafeteria, slopping it out to the men as fast as she could when that bell rang for lunch. If one or the other of us was sick and couldn't go to school, Mama would sneak us in and stack up potato sacks to make a pallet on the floor of the pantry. And she'd leave the door cracked so we could see out, and she could keep an eye on us, too. On those sick days, if I managed to doze off, I'd wake right on up at noontime. The stampede, darling. From where I was, watching out the sliver of that cracked pantry door, I could only see feet. The backs of Mama's white nursing shoes. I don't know why the hell she wore those white shoes. Every night she had to use a chewed up old toothbrush to scrub the drops of gravy and sauce and whatever else off of them. And then, facing Mama and lined up to get their grub, those rowdy men in their steel-toed boots. That's all I could see, but I could hear all kinds of stuff. Even then, I could pick out a sound and tune out the rest. If I wanted to, I could focus and hear the fork scraping against the plates or the wet noises of mouths opening and closing. When they were all lined up, I could hear the man rapping to Mama, you know, flirting. And then I'd hear the craziest thing, Mama laughing and flirting right back. Pearl, 69, 
and her husband entertained us over bear claws and apple cider in the living room of their large colonial in Pontiac, Michigan. During the course of the interview, even while discussing her often strained relationship with Opal, Pearl proudly showed off old childhood photos of her sister, as well as promotional material she's collected over the years related to Opal's career. Opal and I were born two years apart, and we had different fathers. You see how we look so different. We were never blessed to meet them, but if we asked nicely, Mama would tell us whatever stories she could remember. Mine was a war hero they called Poker Joe. He got killed over in Korea, and oh, he just loved her butter beans. Opal's daddy, I think his name was Paul. He was a much older gentleman who got sick and died when we were too young to remember. Poor Mama, having to deal with all that. Widowed twice with two babies to raise in a broke-down building on the east side. We had different daddies, yeah. But both of them worked right there at that GM plant. I bet you money on that. I wouldn't have judged my mother she'd just come clean. Everybody deserves to know where they come from. But Mama never even gave us viable names to work with. Just dumb stories Pearl could eat right up. What are you going to do? My sister loves to believe. A teacher from our elementary school lived the next street over, Mrs. Dennis. And in the summers when school was out, she kept a bunch of us kids for a little extra money. And I mean, it must have been a little little. For one, because if I'm being honest, Mrs. Dennis didn't put a whole lot of effort into it. She just let us run kind of wild. And for two, because our mother really didn't have much to give and neither did the others. All us rugrats had holes in the armpits of our t-shirts, got oatmeal every day for breakfast, summer or winter, and had the shoes that could talk. You know what I'm talking about. Sneakers so cheap and worn down that the soles come unglued and flaps around. <laughs> Mama would drop us off at Mrs. Dennis's place before she caught the bus to work in the mornings, and then at night, she'd pick us up after her shift. Those hours in between, well, all I'll say is they were long. <laughs> Mrs. Dennis didn't like us to go outside. She kept all kinds of toys, but we about killed each other fighting over them in that hot old apartment. On any given day, there would be about 12 of us. And if the boys were feeling generous, they'd let us play with the Green Army men or with a set of checkers or jacks. If they were feeling stingy, that meant playing house or mother may I with the other girls. And well, you know how girls can be. I started losing my hair when I was nine. First, a dime-sized patch of it, just gone in the crown. Then the edges near my right ear started rolling back. At first, I was furious with mama because she used to rake the comb through my hair so mean, and I just knew she was ripping it out by the roots. She washed my hair once a week, every Sunday afternoon, and then she'd sit on the floor while I'd take the position of doom on the floor between her legs. And she'd yank my head back and cleave apart down the middle, and she'd rustle all that thick hair into two of the tightest, fattest plaits you ever saw. My neck muscles got real strong from all that pulling, honey. 
And the whole time, I'd just be wincing and stewing, you know? Because if I even said one ouch, I got a smack on the head and a warning to stop acting like a baby. Pearl would go back to our bedroom terrified because her turn was coming up next. But it was inevitable. Mama was always chasing after you with that damn red comb on a Sunday. If we don't have much else in common, my sister and me, we bonded over that. We were both very tender-headed. So at first, I thought my ball patches were because Mama was so rough. And I guess she assumed that too, because suddenly on wash days, she was gentler with me. The plaits got much looser. So loose, they would barely last a week. And every night, she rubbed extra blue magic into the spots where my hair was gone. That big tub of grease. I'll never forget the sweet smell of it. Too bad it never could work a miracle. And after a while, it got hard to hide Opal losing her hair. And the kids at Mrs. Dennis's wouldn't let her play with them. They'd treat anything she touched like it was dirty. Hard to be dark-skinned and have a problem like that back in those days. I'm being honest. At first, Opal would get so mad. She'd be crying these furious tears swelled up from the depths of her little soul. And I'd try to comfort her, but she'd squall like the devil and shove me away. Oh, those hooligans called me out my name, honey. It was Baldy Scaldy Patches. When Mama finally stopped sitting vigil for whatever strands I had left on my head, she'd send me to Mrs. Dennis's with this bright red scarf on. So then I was picking any. That's the nasty little name that traveled with me back to school that fall and all the way through Eastern High. My sister tried her best to protect me, but I was kind of feisty, if you can imagine. I like Mrs. Dennis, though. She never really refereed all that mess. She probably had enough of it during the school year, and who could blame her? But I was the only one she'd invite up on her sofa. And every afternoon, while all the other kids were acting like ingrates, we'd sit together while she watched As the World Turns and The Guiding Light on her tiny black and white TV. Mrs. Dennis loved her stories, honey, and she made sure to hustle along our lunches. Bologna sandwiches, always bologna sandwiches on white bread with yellow mustard, so she wouldn't be bothered once they came on. And while she watched, she let me flip through the magazine she kept laid out on her coffee table. Ebony, of course, and Look, and some trash ones, too. The throwaway movie magazines, you remember those. She'd switched them out a lot, but there was one Mrs. Dennis always kept on the table, and that was an old issue of Life that had Miss Dorothy Dandridge on the cover. Miss Dorothy had on her Carmen Jones outfit, the black and the red, with bare shoulders, and a rose tucked into her curls, and a look at the camera like, woo! brow cocked up just so, and a flash in the eyes. I really liked her attitude, her style. Maybe that was the first time I ever noticed anybody's style. That the way you looked could make you into a different person, a character. So Dorothy was my favorite. But I also loved Lauren Bacall, because she always looked like she knew something juicy that you didn't, and also like she didn't take no stuff. You could say that I first learned about showmanship and mystique sitting on that couch in the summer. A balding little black outcast. By 1961, Barry Gordy's Motown was making Americans notice Detroit for more than automobiles, with big hits by the Miracles and the Marvelettes. That same year, 
Ruby Robinson sent her two daughters, then 14 and 12, on a trailways bus heading south to spend the first of three summers with relatives from whom she had been estranged. We were terrified to go. We're talking about the South in 1961, baby. And not just any South, Alabama South, Bull Connor South. Mama had our plans all set, tickets bought, letters written. And then that May, not long before school let out, we saw all the news about the Freedom Riders, pictures of buses burning, smoke pouring out the windows. Those kids were not much older than Pearl and me. I would glance at Mama's face when the reports were on, and her jaw would be clenched, her brows scrunched up. I worked up the nerve one night to ask her, are the white folks gonna kill us? If you don't bother them, they won't bother you. That's what she kept telling us. And in that last week or so before we left, she would make us repeat it after her. <laughs> that might have been the first prayer I ever learned. <laughs> At the bus station, she pushed brown bags full of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches into our hands and ordered us to never step foot off that bus. She handed our one suitcase to an attendant who put it under the coach. And then she watched as we boarded and set our behinds in the back, just like she told us to do. The whole thing felt like we were being drafted for some war. And on the other end of it were people who were complete foreigners to us. We had never met them, our own family. Opal and I didn't piece it together till years later when Mama was dying and the doctor was asking questions about her medical history. But that summer, she had to have a hysterectomy. We found out it happened two days after we got on that bus. Bless her soul. She didn't have a choice but to make arrangements for us. This was an excerpt from the book, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. You can grab yourself a copy now at your favorite local bookseller. The voice of S. Sonny Curtis was played by author Donnie Walton herself. Opal was voiced by Gwendolyn Carter. Pearl was voiced by Rashida Clendening. And thank you to Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley and Jesse Adler from the Podglomerate. Social media help is from Sylvia Beltil. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix and engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. Find us on Twitter, on Instagram, at StoryBoundPod, or you can write to me directly at Jude Brewery. Season four is coming to an end, but we are working hard on season five. New episodes every Tuesday. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.